Hello, and welcome to the National Park Service Southwest Archaeology Podcast, brought to you by the Southern Arizona Office. My name is Matt Gubar. And I'm Charlotte Hart. Welcome to Episode 8 of the National Park Service Southwest Archaeology Podcast. March is both Arizona's Archaeology and Heritage Awareness Month, and it's Women's History Month. So today we're interviewing Jan Balsam of the Grand Canyon. Matt will give some background for Jan, then we'll get to her interview, and as always, discuss some takeaways. So Charlotte, you had the opportunity to interview Jan Balsam, and unfortunately I wasn't able to be a part of that interview. But uh, she has a really remarkable career at Grand Canyon. She started uh, working at the park in 1981. She became the park archaeologist in 1984, served in that position until 1995, then went on to be the chief of resources, meaning that she was in charge of the natural resource and cultural resource programs from 1995 until 2006. After that, she became the Deputy Chief for Science and Resource Management, and now she's the Senior Advisor to the Superintendent. So it's worth mentioning that these are all really high-profile jobs at one of the world's most well-known national parks. And the work that she's done over the years has really helped to influence not only the way that cultural and natural resources are treated at Grand Canyon, but really throughout the National Park Service and certainly in the West and in the Southwest. So she's a really important and influential figure uh, in sort of the development of of archeology span in the National Park Service today. Good morning, I'm here with Jen Balsam, Senior Advisor to the Superintendent of Grand Canyon National Park, um, who started out as an archeologist and has uh, risen through the ranks. Thank you for joining me today. My pleasure. Um, So I guess we'll start with some basic things about the Grand Canyon. Most people have an idea in their head uh, of what the Grand Canyon is, but can you give a brief overview of why the park was set aside and the breadth of resources that um, you've helped uh, protect and preserve over the years? I'd be happy to. So, you know, Grand Canyon, it's really funny because when I first moved to Arizona, I had no idea what the Grand Canyon was. I'd never been west of Chicago. And here I was uh, driving from New York to Arizona to start graduate school and I saw the signs for the Grand Canyon and I said, oh, it'll be my only opportunity, I better go. (laughs) And I'm driving and I'm driving and I'm driving with one of my old roommates. Um, We're driving, we're driving and it just takes a long time, it, it seemed. And it's like there's this open landscape. I'd never really seen such a vast open Western landscape before. So it was, mm-hmm. I kept thinking, where are they hiding it? it it's so big, <laughs> I should be able to see it by now. And we finally got up to the park and to Mather Point, and I did what most tourists did, which is I went to Mather Point and it's like, oh my gosh. And then I went and bought a t-shirt and had lunch and left. Right. So it was a typical um, Grand Canyon visit of less than three hours. Um, less than a year later, I ended up coming back and working with a, a friend of mine who I'd met in graduate school um, as an archaeologist at the Grand Canyon, and my world changed. And I think most people, when they have that opportunity, they come to the Grand Canyon, they think it's, it's just like a painting, a picture, but once you get to the park, you actually can see and smell the pine trees 
you can hear the wind, you can you know, the night skies, I mean, all of the range of resources. Is a, it's, it can be overwhelming I mean, from the natural side. And then there's the layers of human history. And all of those things together just give you a, a very robust idea of why the Grand Canyon was set aside, why Teddy Roosevelt said it's one of the places every American should see, why um, it's something to preserve for your children and your children's children. And um, I'm hoping that the legacy that of protection that we have now will continue into the future so everyone really can enjoy the, the Grand Canyon as it is today. So what should visitors know about coming to the Grand Canyon so they can enjoy it? Um. You know, when v folks come to the canyon, it's funny because I tend to um, serve as a lot of my family's tour guides. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the first thing is um, hope for weather. Hope for something more than just sunny blue skies. Um, hope for opportunities to walk along the rim without being with a lot of other people. Arrange your visit so you can come early in the morning, so that you can come off season. Um, set expectations for that. If you come in the middle of the summer, you're going to have middle of the summer crowds. Um, but take the time to even walk the trail for five minutes down below the rim. Even five minutes below the rim gives you a sense of your place in the landscape and in the world and the immensity of the canyon and what that resource is. It doesn't take very long. Um, so go for a, a hike, walk along the rim, take the time to smell, look at different times of the day, um, you know, and enjoy the canyon, the forest surrounded them. Folks don't I don't think a lot of people understand just how precious those forests are. Definitely. As well. And then the opportunities that we have, um, whether it be at uh, our visitor center in Mattapoint area, whether it's at the Desert View area that we're currently working on, um, as a tribal heritage area, all of those things offer great um, and, and diverse opportunities for enjoying the park. Um, so have some time. Um, spend more than I did my first visit less than uh, three hours. Uh, try to spend a day, spend a night. I mean, it's great to be able to see the sky at night and wake up to the sunrise. Take the time, spend the night. Um, and if you're like me, you start out saying, I'll just come for a few hours and you end up making it a lifetime. Yeah. So. And your interpretive division does excellent star parties and, yep. and night sky programming too. Our uh, night sky programs are so popular that even those of us who live there can't um, get up to the <laughs> telescope. Sounds about right. So what is your role as a senior advisor um, in managing all of these resources? The complexity of the resources of the Grand Canyon sort of led me through a career that was a little different than I ever anticipated. Um, working directly for the superintendent now puts me in a position to help um, the superintendent's office recognize the threats and opportunities that are posed. A lot of the work that I've done over the years has been addressing those threats from outside interests, whether it be uranium mining or aircraft overflights, um, water and developments outside the park, um, operations at Glen Canyon Dam, things that affect the cultural and natural resources and visitor experiences. So um, it's bringing the um, experiences and the information from my history at Grand Canyon so that we can apply it to decisions that we make today in terms of resource management. So um, Grand Canyon is not known for its cultural resources, despite the fact that we have over 4,300, it's more than that now, 
recorded archaeological sites. We estimate there's somewhere around 50,000 in the park. That's amazing. Um, yeah. And it's an yeah. amazing resource. Yeah. And, but it's subtle. We aren't Mesa Verde. We aren't Chaco Canyon. Um, you don't see it unless you know it's there because people live differently on the land. And it's such a vast landscape that you don't necessarily notice it. The, right. the humans on that landscape, uh, from the tribal perspective, from time immemorial, from an archaeological perspective, for about 12,000 years. So a huge history um, that's right there, in the, and it's invisible unless you take the time. Um, but it's a, it's a fascinating resource. Excellent. Yeah. So you've spent the majority of your professional career at the Grand Canyon, um, starting out as a volunteer um, while you were still in graduate school, and then after obtaining your degree in 1984, um, you started as the as a park archaeologist. So uh, what's kept you at the Grand Canyon? You know, I, um, when I finished uh, my graduate work, I all of a sudden was the park archaeologist at the ripe old age of 24. And it was way too much. Yeah. Um, in a lot of ways, I was not prepared for that job. Um, but there I was. And the thing about Grand Canyon is that you can't get bored unless you're not doing something. I mean, there is always something to do. And I started out um, simply, simply as the park archaeologist, as an archaeologist, then the park archaeologist, and I began to realize that all of these resources were connected. Mm -hmm. um, we had a, uh, a joint natural cultural uh, resource management program, so it was all, both sides. And then, you know, the uh, recreation wilderness piece was always sort of out there, which is a really important piece yeah. that most resource programs don't address that we really need to, because those things, social resources, social values that are associated with them, all, all part of it. And I ended up being. Um, office with the natural resource managers. Um, so I started realizing early on that there was so much that was overlapping between what we yeah. did and that we needed to be working more together. And what always frustrated me was when I was putting in um, proposals for regional funding to the, the SEC program now was something different in the, in the years ago, um, that there was no place to put in for joint projects between the resource categories. It had to either be in the cultural resource NRPP or CRPP couldn't mm -hmm. have, it was really hard to get those joint programs. Um, but we kept working on them and we kept trying to figure out ways to work together. So we started, you know, so a lot of the work was early on just doing compliance archaeology. And then I ended up as a tribal liaison as part of this uh, because I realized that the, the laws said we were supposed to consult, there wasn't anybody doing that. And <laughs> I, I sent a letter, we were doing a project with Denver Service Center on Eastern Drive to build a parking lot for the New Hance Trailhead. Um, and if anybody has tried to park at the parking lot at the New Hance Trailhead, you'll find there is none. Um, right. Because we started this project, and there I was doing the archaeology, 106, and there was a pretty big lithic scatter there, and we didn't know what else was there. And I knew we were supposed to consult. I didn't really know how. I ended up as the 106 person as well. So I sent out these letters to all the tribes um, that I knew of that were associated with Grand Canyon. At the time, there's only five. We have 11 now. Right. Um, and the entire Havasupai Tribal Council showed up in the superintendent's office. And that was a good indication that maybe there was a concern. Yeah. And at that point in time, the superintendent um, said, I guess we need somebody who does that. I guess it will be you. 
<laughs> um, so the tribal liaison got added to my position at that point in time. And it, it's kind of interesting because I think most archaeologists find themselves working with tribal people. Yeah. And it's good in a way because it's we're, we're talking about ancestors and whether um, they're, you know, you're American um, or native peoples, archaeologists deal with um, the past and it's the recent past, it's the distant past. So connecting with the descendant populations is great, although most archaeologists go into archaeology because they don't want to deal with living people. Right. So many of us find ourselves in awkward situations where we're pretty much introverts, we don't want to actually do that stuff, um, and here we are doing that. So working with the tribes brought a whole new dimension to the archaeology. Yeah. Because it, it wasn't just stuff anymore, it was my grandparents, my great-grandparents, these are areas I know from um, families' histories. Um, and I say histories because many of my tribal colleagues have said, these are not stories. They are histories. Right. Um, so each time those things happened, my job changed. And it got more interesting, more complex, um, and more engaging. And working with the tribal communities, the park had a pretty um, difficult relationship with many of our tribal communities, especially the Havasupai. And after eight years, the Havasupai finally started to talk to me. And we bridged that gap, and um, our relationship with the tribes in general is, is great. I mean, we've worked Excellent. from having a terrible relationship to having a great relationship. And in most of the publications on American Indians and National Parks, Grand Canyon gets at least one, sometimes two chapters, <coughs> yeah. because of the difficulty of those situations. <laughs> um, but we've worked through it all to a point where um, our tribal colleagues are, are really bad. And there's um, a really good way in which that we work together on moving those programs forward. And I think when I look at why and what allowed me to stay at Grand Canyon so long, it was because I could continue to develop a program because there really wasn't one. I started out as the archaeologist, um, the woman who had hired me, who's a former Park Service archaeologist, had moved on. Um, so I kind of was it. And then I needed for to For a park that to, big. For a park that big. And I started needed to develop a program. So compliance archaeology, fire archaeology, and then I started realizing just the breadth of the resources. And that's, that shift got me into cultural resource management as a whole, looking at landscapes and buildings and um, ethnographic resources, history, all of the sort of the fuller range museum collections, all of those things. And the, the reason why national parks are set aside is because people care about them. And it's that human dimension that allows us the protections and the preservation and the stewardship. You know, it was us, our ancestors, who passed the Antiquities Act through Congress, who set aside the national parks. And, you know, the, the myth of these, you know, these idyllic natural landscapes, well, there are right. always people part of them. Yes. And so I think our job is to help connect people in place. And as archaeologists, we have an opportunity to use the material culture that we find to create those histories, to get the broader public more interested in what we're doing. And once, you know, you get that engagement, you have stewardship, and you have people who care, and you have advocates. And all of those things help with what we do today, and it helps us move forward, it helps the parks move forward, 
it helps keep us relevant. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's so much of what you know my career has ended up being, not anything I planned, um, but it's a way to engage. And it's a way to keep those things engaging. And there's the, the tourists out there, um, but I think that they're getting th- uh, more isolated because we have a society that really needs to f- find relevance and connect. Right, right. So I think that those are all of the, the reasons why. And then, I, you know, I ended up with some amazing projects. Um, starting out as, you know, as a sole archaeology Grand Canyon with a, you know, 2% inventory. Um, uh, Glen wow, Canyon Dam. 2% inventory. At the time. Yeah. yeah. We're up to about 6%, so, you know. Excellent. I, it's more than That's, double. Yeah. You know. Um, so we start with a relatively small amount, and it was all really compliance-based. And my first big project was um, working on Glen Canyon Dam operations. Um, this was in the late 80s. We'd had a series of very high water years out of Glen Canyon Dam. There's a lot of resources that were exposed. I mean, I was a graduate student, and I'm on the river evaluating archaeological sites, and one of our uh, uh, boat operators came walking over while I was um, monitoring known uh, resources, and um, I'm not sure I can say this, but I'm going to say it. He goes, I think you got a goddamn city over there. (laughs) And I kind of looked... And I walked over to where he was, and there was a series of really deep arroyos that had been cut through the, um, the sand. And there were huge walls that were exposed, artifacts coming out. It turns out the, the main arroyo was a kiva. Oh, my God. It was all buried in river sands. Because for, for years, people had thought that people didn't live along the Colorado River, that, uh, which was kind of silly to even think that. Right. Uh, it's a river in the West. Of course they're going to live there. Um, but years and years, every year, the Colorado River would flood. It was a huge floodplain. People lived on the floodplains, just like they do now. Uh, sediment-laden river buried all of the materials. So everything was just buried under these huge sand dunes. And it kind of shifted, again, my whole thinking on this. And at the same... That's a watershed moment. It, it is. It is exactly a watershed <laughs> moment. It's like, okay. So yeah. here we have a shift. And it's like, okay. And I'm, I'm a grad student, and I'm, like, I didn't know what to do. Um, one of my, my mentors and predecessor, uh, Bob Euler at Grand Canyon, we got off this trip and I go to Bob, he's like, you're not going to believe this! And I started explaining it to him and his first response was, oh, it's just another stinking P2 site. And it's like, no, it's more than that. And I should say for our listeners, P2 is Pueblo II. It's one Pueblo of II the, period. Uh, one of the most common uh, archaeological periods in the Southwest. Yeah. And as a soon to be graduate, but as a graduate student, it's like, this is, this, no, it's more than this. I have seen a lot of Pueblo two-period sites. Um, this is not that. They're, the walls that I saw were the size of Volkswagens. They were huge, and this is not what anybody thinks of as Grand Canyon archaeology. So I convinced him, and we got a helicopter, we got, did some helicopter work, did a helicopter, went down, and did spent a day with him taking photographs, and he uh, was impressed. He was surprised. He uh, was surprised. Because he'd been there countless times, same place, right. but it was all buried. So it really was a shift in our thinking of what archaeology was at Grand Canyon, too. So that moment, and it happened that the Secretary of the Interior at the time called for rec- your reclamation to do a new EIS on dam operations. There was a lot of pressure from the environmental community, from the public, to how Glen Canyon dam operations were affecting Grand Canyon. It was a 
different time politically um, to allow those things to happen as well. And um, we went from Secretary Lujan at the time telling Reclamation to do an EIS to the Grand Canyon Protection Act being passed in 1992. And I can claim that in the purpose of the act, the words cultural resources came from me. That's wonderful. Um, so working with our superintendent, our natural resource manager, and congressional staff who are working on the bill, uh, we were faxing back and forth. And it was always going to be about natural resources. And I, I just kept saying, but what about the cultural resource? I was a little kid. I was like, what about the cultural resources? And they, they suck it in. And it's in the bill. Um, I wish I would have used different language because um, I there is some confusion at times as to what does a cultural resource mean. We as managers have a very clear understanding, but sometimes the public doesn't, nor right. do the other. Um, the Grand Canyon Protection Act really addresses how the secretary manages Glen Canyon oper dam operations, but it also includes um, stakeholders, the seven basin states who have interest in how water is released, uh, power and water interests, from municipalities to power producers, um, Indian tribes, all of our tribal colleagues are part of this. So um, the tribes see cultural resources, everything from a tribal perspective is a cultural resource. Um, and it is, yeah, because um, that's where those values come from, is from our cultures. Um, so it gets a little confusing at times, but cultural resources are there. And we then started with an archeological inventory survey of the Colorado River Corridor that um, sites that could be potentially affected by Glen Canyon Dam. Um, that's led to a lot of additional work over the years um, and also tribal engagement. The first tribal river trip we did was in preparation for doing the archeological inventory survey. And at the time I didn't know what I was doing. I, I guessed at what would be right, what I thought would be right to make to invite everybody. I didn't know that they had never, none of the tribal folks who had whose ancestors lived in the canyon had never been. I, I didn't know any of that. I just kind of like, like, it seems like a good idea. And people said, yeah, so I guess this will work. And I just kept working on it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you talk about kind of career paths and what keeps you a place, it's, it's recognizing that it's like those moments, those watershed moments where things change. And all of a sudden there's a new enlightenment. I mean, to be able to bring, you know, religious leaders from the Pueblo Zuni into the canyon for the first time and being with them and knowing that they are seeing places that they only know from oral history. And they know them well enough in their minds and that we're there on site is an amazing connection. And when you yeah. talk about those things that keep you, those are the things that make it worth it. And, wow. and they continue. I mean, it's like, you know, I know these places, they describe them to me, and I know where they're talking about. They've never seen them, but I know where it is. And being able to, knowing how strong those connections are, even though they themselves have been removed from place for generations, they still know it. So and that's that history. And it's, it's that not history. a story. It's not a story. And they know it, and, um, and it continues. I mean, their connections are getting stronger because of the work that we've been able to do. And I've, I've been criticized for that. You know, why is it that you think that you should accept what they say? And it's like, well, why shouldn't I? Right. And it, there's, I, there was a, there's, there have been uh, letters that we've gotten um, from folks who really did have taken us to task for this approach. And um, it's like, why would somebody, why would a tribe lie? Yeah. Like, what, what, 
because working with a federal agency is so much fun. Right. <laughs> There's no red tape involved. There's not endless meetings. You know, why would, you know, and it's like, what arrogance on our part to, to dismiss these histories. And, and again, right. because I've seen these connections firsthand, it's like, you have, you over there, you have no you right. This is yeah. not your history. It's their history. And I'm not going to tell them you're wrong. If you want to tell them they're wrong, go ahead. And then never, they never, never goes that direction. <laughs> but that's the sort of thing that's like, and I go back to, it's like, okay, as an archaeologist, I never, ever thought that I was going to be in this position. But here I am. And what I bring to my current position with the, is with the superintendent is all of this experience. And when things, you know, pop up in a Grand Canyon, things are always popping up, can go back to what I understand of the cultures, of the people, of the relationships to help um, us manage better into the future. And it's really about long-term protection, preservation of all of the resources because for me, they're all cultural resources too. Right. So that's kind of, um, so when you get back to why am I still there, that's why. So is um, the interactions with tribes one of the biggest changes you've seen in cultural resource management while you've been there? I think that, Certainly, the interactions that the Park Service has in general, the work with tribes, I think, has definitely changed over the years. The, um, the regional offices, the or, you know, Washington office, they all had very prescriptive programs. Well, they, weren't, they didn't start, they weren't very robust at first, and I think we pushed the envelope on some of those. Yeah. I mean, we started doing a fee waiver for um, local tribes back in the late 80s, and it was, um, people, especially our rangers, were very nervous about that. But we came up with a, a protocol for that. Nobody nobody got really scared after it, it was implemented. Um, and then working on consultation policies as well. Mm-hmm. And working on NAGPRA agreements after NAGPRA was passed. I mean, we're one of the first parks to actually come up with an agreement that all of the tribes agreed to. Because and NAGPRA you, is the, the Native, Native American, American Graves Protection and Repatriation yeah. Act, sorry. Um, so when, when we establish, you know, working relationships, some of it comes back to relationships. Yeah. Um, because if you don't have trust and you can't just talk to people, you can't move that on. And I think for us as resource managers, we're the humanists in our organizations. Um, we are the social scientists. We are those who deal with, I think, the harder science because people don't replicate behavior. So what we do is not easy. I mean, sometimes, you know, it's referred to as soft science and hard science, but I think it's more hard because social science is not replicable in, a, in the same way. You don't get the same answer from a human twice. Right. And I think within our profession, most of the time my answer is going to be, it depends. <laughs> yes. Because it does. It's going to depend. Uh, in a lot of the other sciences, I mean, you can repeat the experiment, and, and the idea is to actually get the same result every time. I think with when, with what we do, it's not replicable in that same way. So it really does make a difference as to how we look at it. And I think for many of us, getting out of our comfort zone of just looking at stuff mm-hmm. and then taking the stuff and saying, well, what does that mean for people? Right. And what does that mean for preservation? And how do we go about preserving what's important and making it relevant for the descendants? Um, of those populations, but also for our visitors. And, you know, certainly in the parks, Grand Canyon is one that has, you know, huge international visitation. And people are fascinated with the American West. They're fascinated with the Native uh, story. 
Um, they're fascinated to know that people are still here. I mean, one of the projects I think I'm proudest of is the installation of what we call the Tribal Medallion at Mather Point. Oh. Uh, if you go to Grand Canyon, you go from the visitor center to Mather Point, you walk from uh, the buildings out to the overlook and you walk right through an area we call Medallion. And all of the tribes of the area are um, represented uh, as part of the landscape. That's wonderful. Um, and it's, it's really cool because they all helped design it. And one of the questions that I've gotten more than once is how did you get them all to decide because Folks are familiar in the in the Southwest with some of the um, disputes amongst the tribes. Uh, Hopi and um, Navajo, in particular, come up as how did you get them to decide? It's because they all have a shared history, and I think if if we don't allow the divisions to bind our working relationship, they won't either. Right. So we say everyone was here. We know everyone was here. The archaeological record is. Um, not so um, divisive as to suggest that there was no overlapping of people or culture. Right. And I look at myself, um, and this comes up in the uh, Native American Graves Protection Repatriation Act discussions, <laughs> um, about when you find human remains, who, who claims them? At Grand Canyon, all of these people lived here for all of these years. And traditionally, archaeologists would say, oh, well, they had Puebloan pottery with them, therefore they must be Puebloan. Well, I think about myself, and if I was to be buried with my favorite things, I have a, um, I'm wearing right now some Hopi jewelry. Mm-hmm. Um, my earrings are Hawaiian. Okay, there's two things. I have lots of Navajo rugs. I have lots of Hopi pottery. I have um, greenstone from New Zealand. So if you were to bury with all of my favorite things and presume that um, the stuff I'm buried with identifies who I was culturally, where, where would I end up? Right. And then if you were to do my DNA, you'd find out that uh, my ancestors are from Lithuania. So I- am I Lithuanian? Is that where you would put me? It's like, no. It's yeah. like, how do you identify yourself? And I think that's one of the traps that we've fallen into as archaeologists, is presuming that material culture, um, the things equal who the person was and how they identify themselves. Right. And I think that that's a real challenge for us moving forward. And I think that's part of the dialogues that we have with um, Native peoples today is to understand. I mean, I think all of us have worked with um, folks out uh, in reservation communities who, you know, uh, might be an Apache married to a Hopi who's living in Supai. I mean, the boundaries are not nearly as clear, and I think archaeology in general tried to put things in very discrete boxes, and people don't work that way. Right. And I think we today are realizing that, and I think that's that's one of the the challenges, um, but it's also one of the opportunities. Yeah. yeah. Well, so speaking of opportunities, um, we also uh, interviewed Lloyd Masayamtawa, superintendent of Hubble Trading Post, and um, that was for an interview back in November. And we asked him two questions that I'd like your perspective on. Um, so the National Park Service is always working to incorporate Native American perspectives into interpretation, um, but there is room for improvement. So how can we do a better job? What are the opportunities out there of representing ancestral and living Native American people? I love that question because that's, I think, what we're trying to focus on. Um, My whole career has been at kind of pushing the envelope and trying to push the boundaries and getting away from sort of the traditional um, approach of talking about somebody else's history. And this really is going to be about first voice 
right. how do we bring first voice into this? And um, one of the projects we have ongoing right now is an entire um, reboot of our Desert View area. So the Desert View area of the Na of Grand Canyon is the um, eastern boundary of the South Rim. Uh, the t Desert View Watchtower itself is a National Historic Landmark. Um, it was constructed by Santa Fe Railroad and Fred Harvey in 1932-1933. Uh, the architect of record is Mary Elizabeth Jane Coulter. It's an NHL um, because of her architectural prowess. Um, Which is a National Historic Landmark, yeah, the NHL. National Historic la Landmark. Mm -hmm. um, it's also, um, there's also a second NHL on the same landscape for the 1956 mid-air plane crash that oh. happened over Grand Canyon. So that. it's multiple levels of history. Yeah. So you've got indigenous history, native history, you've from you know, 10,000, 12,000 years ago to the present. It's an amazing view looking out into the Little Colorado River, Marble Canyon area of the park. You're looking to the east to Navajo Nation and Hopi. Um, you're looking to the north and west towards um, southern Paiute areas. Mm -hmm. You're looking to the south to the San Francisco peaks. So it's got this amazing vista and landscape that are all significant places for Native people. We have a 1932, 33 um, uh, uh, historic building sitting there with a few outbuildings. Um, you've got the National Historic Landmark plaque for the mid-air crash site. It's also right there. And it's an opportunity to start reshaping Desert View as a cultural heritage area for the Native people. Nice. And what we've been working on, and um, we'll continue to do this, I mean, so there's multiple components, and I think this is what's really interesting about this project. Every project I do has multiple components. None of them are going to be easy. Anthropology is pretty messy. It is very, yeah. it's a messy, messy discipline. And, it, and I think it's because we are all trained more as humanists than we could think, um, and actually deduce things and actually be critical thinkers right. that allows us to kind of get more engaged than just looking at stuff. Mm. Um, so we have formed an intertribal advisory committee um, that work is working with us on this. They're not necessarily government to government representatives. Excellent. Um, they are com more community based. They Some may be on council, some may not. There's, they're a little bit fluid. And we have a tribal program lead who has coordinated all of, all of this, a woman named Janet Cohen who's been with the park for, for about eight years now. Um, and she has put together this group that's working with us on this project um, to really change how we do Desert View. The Watchtower had been part of the uh, Zantara contract. It was removed from the contract uh, two years ago, two okay. and a half years ago. So it's Park Service managed now. Um, and we are in the redesign to really allow that to be first voice. We have a huge cultural demonstration program that is ongoing that um, we got grant money. Um, and, and that's been a huge piece of that, too, is how do we fund this? When you work for the Park Service, we're used to using coupons for most things. Right, right. Um, we don't have a lot of money. You so mentioned the SCC earlier, the Service-Wide right. Comprehensive Call, which right. is essentially us writing grants for project money from the Park Service. From ourselves. From ourselves, yeah. But there's not that much of it. No. And it's, it's really competitive. And so we have a project at Desert View where we got a half million dollar grant from American Express to start doing the conservation work. So there's different pieces. So you've got historic preservation that's happening within the tower itself at the same time as you're looking at changing contemporary uses and actually setting it up for the future. And you um, 
uh, you did a CESU project for that, right, with Doug Porter and Angeline Bass? We, we did. We interviewed them earlier okay. in the series as well. So they were yeah. the recipient. They got a lot of the grant money. Yeah. Was went to that agreement for them to do the work. Excellent. Um, Excellent. And that work has been done. Um, and then the other part of those funds went um, to start the cultural demonstration program. Okay. Um, the Grand Canyon Association, which is our cooperating association, um, is um, raising money. It's one of their capital campaign project areas um, because what we want to do is really transform that place. And we talk about transformation. Mm -hmm. It's like we want, when visitors go to Desert View, we want it to be different than a national, than the typical National Park Service somebody green and gray telling you about somebody else's history. The idea for Desert View is it really is going to be about tribal people talking about tribal history and not just the past but present and future and That's using great. Desert View as a catalyst for that first voice and to get our visitors out to Indian country. Yeah. How do we how do we engage folks 6 million people a year even if a small percentage went out to Indian country it would be a huge boon to their local economies as well. Certainly. But we have to set it up with the tribal communities to make sure that they're ready for it. Right, too. right. Um, in 2016, there was an act called the Native Act that mm -hmm. was passed, which is about tribal tourism in Indian country. And we are kind of poised to be, I think, one of the first areas that could really use the, the legal backing of that act um, with the help of the Bureau of Indian Affairs to help the tribal communities figure out better ways to, for them to accept visitors too. So it's got to be done in concert. So if we look at Desert View as that kind of that catalyst and have that first person interpretation happening here, having it really be more of a, a tribal approach with the park services sort of um, structure, but those voices, I think that that's going to start changing sort of the dialogue in a lot of other places. So yeah. that, that's a biggie. Um, that's great. And I feel like you actually answered the, the second question as well. Um, that we asked Lloyd, which was that Native American governments and people have, and federal archaeologists, um, have often been at odds over issues regarding the treatment of ancestral places, mm -hmm. human remains, and objects. Um, but there's also examples of cooperation and collaboration. Um, and can you think of any examples or projects that you've been involved in that had positive and mutually beneficial results? Um, I think Desert View is, is an ongoing one. Yeah. I mean, even the tribal medallion. I mean, nobody yeah. thought that we could get everybody to agree to it. And I mean, I've got. Um, you know, uh, pencil drawings that from uh, meetings that we were in, we were talking about another project that we did, which was called Grand Archaeology, where all mm -hmm. the tribes actually helped us interpret all of the materials from the Colorado River sites so that we could get a better understanding of what all of this meant. It's these folks' ancestors um, help us understand what these things are. It was great. Yeah. But, you know, each one of the, you know, Navajo suggested doing this, Hopi suggested, mm -hmm. you know, I've got these pencil drawings, and those went to the artist, and the artist then created what became the medallion. We went through a lot of iterations with the mm -hmm. tribes, and I think it was probably version 12 where somebody realized we'd spelled Wallapai wrong. Uh, <laughs> whoops. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so, um, but I mean, that was a really great collaborative effort. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, everybody was on board with that. Um, so, you know, we worked on that. We worked on Grand Archaeology, Desert View, obviously. We have Heritage Days are ongoing mm -hmm. um, that we do, the cultural demonstrations. It started, we were hoping that we'd get enough um, artists who wanted to. Now there's waiting lists. And wow. um, so all of those things, you know, and it just continues to be a really positive opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, the Native Land Corps, we've had them up in the park and we're gonna continue working on Native youth programs like, how do we start getting the next generation of Native youth and youth from the area 
interested in actually working for the park, working in the park um, in, in ways that are meaningful. And so we have an opportunity now to kind of set um, a new foundation for this next generation and we're gonna look at every opportunity we can to do it. Nice, that's wonderful. Yeah. Um, so tribal perspectives often don't see a difference between natural and cultural resources. Um, and I've often been drawn to the intersection of natural and cultural resources. Um, and you as a resource manager, or not just an archeologist, um, you in 2011 won the NPS Natural Resource Management Award for three projects, including the supporting the development of a 10-year protocol for high flow releases from Glen Canyon, which we talked about a little bit earlier, which uh, removed non-native fish within the Colorado River within an area sacred to traditionally associated Indian tribes, and the withdrawal of over a million acres of public land surrounding the park from uranium mining. Um, so how does your background as an archaeologist influence your management priorities and the goals for the park? So, you know, as an archaeologist, I mean, one of the things is that we're trained to think. Mm -hmm. And archaeology is part of anthropology, and it really is that larger discipline of people, and people can't be divorced from the land. And I think that as we um, kind of evolve within our own disciplines, we realize those connections. I mean, working on the projects I've worked on, and, and I do think that I might be the only uh, 193 series archaeologist to ever receive the Director's Natural Resource Award. Um, it, you know, I ended up working on it in a lot of ways. It's because, um, because of my academic training, I could see the bigger picture. That it, there was the archaeology and the piece on the land that we could connect with tribal people, um, but then we have to connect it with what's going on within the, the relevance, again, of um, where our nation is politically. I mean, uranium mining is a, no pun here, but hot topic <laughs> for some people, yeah. um, and it certainly is for us. I mean, and we have to start thinking about future generations as well. It's like, what is the legacy of land management we're going to be leaving? So um, when I think about how I ended up doing and being involved, sometimes I don't think I ever thought well, I never did think I was going to go that direction in terms of my work, but I didn't say no, mm -hmm. and I could, I could see how things could connect in a way that I think many of my more traditional natural resource colleagues don't think about the human side, the people side, the way we think about the natural side. Right. People use natural resources. So I think for us it's, a, it's normal to right. kind of think right. about that. When e even recording archaeological sites on all of our archaeological forms, we're always looking at, you know, water sources, plant communities. You know, we're thinking about how were people living here? What were they eating? What were they getting? All of those things. So we're always thinking more in that landscape. It's like what's around us. Right. Where I think a lot of our natural resource colleagues are focused very much on the fish or the squirrel or the you know, whatever it might be, right. but they don't necessarily see how all of that stuff, they don't, they're not looking necessarily as it as an ecosystem. And I think that despite the fact that we don't necessarily use those terms in anthropology a lot, that's what we do all the time. Right, right. And so I think that when I look at the projects that I, that I was working on, and, um, and I'm pretty proud of, of actually having a hand in these. Yeah. Um, protection, you know, withdrawal of, you know, a million acres of land around Grand Canyon from new mineral entry. That's um, huge. It's huge. It's, there is an assault on that right now. Um, we may lose those protections, but it was huge, and it's huge to the tribal communities who have been plagued with the, um, 
the fallout from the downwinders, but also just the unreclaimed mines all over Indian country. Just around Cameron alone, there's hundreds of unreclaimed um, mining areas from uranium, wow. from the big buildup years from the 50s. So, And know, I should say for our uh, listeners, downwinders are people who um, were affected, who were downwind of uranium uh, production and, and were affected by the... Um, Radicals. It, yeah, it's it's and also from some of the tests from the nuclear testing. Right, right. Um, and they were living downwind of uh, where they tested the atomic bombs, mm-hmm. and they've suffered immense health issues over the years. Right. Um, and many of the tribal communities and are part of that. And then just the the legacy of mining, especially on Navajo Nation lands. Um, they're still hundreds of Superfund sites out there that need to be cleaned up. So, yeah. you know, recognizing that what we do today has a, an effect on people and these communities is really important. I think that we as anthropologists are in a really good sp- space to be able to connect those things together um, in a way and, and be pretty articulate with it, too. And, and you know, I'm always challenged with it's just your opinion. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, we, we may actually have a way to have more than just an opinion. We actually right. might be able to bring some academic science to it. Right. And it doesn't mean it's just numbers. There's a lot of tools that anthropologists can use, you know, that we as archaeologists have had. I mean, many of us had four field trainings, and I did as well. Um, But to use those tools, and I think that's one of the the benefits and, you know, the blessings that we have as being um, from a discipline that realizes that that there's more to it Mm -hmm. and teaches us really to think. That's great. I agree. Um, so this episode is airing during uh, both Arizona's March Archaeological and Heritage Awareness Month, as well as National Women's History Month. Um, has being a woman influenced you as an archaeologist or as a park manager? I don't think I could be doing what I'm doing if I wasn't a woman. I think that um, the acceptance I had with our tribal colleagues, a lot of it was um, because I was female. Interesting. I, um, okay. And I, I was challenged by some of my male colleagues um, especially when it came to like sacred sites and things like that, and you can't go there because you're a woman. It's like, you know what? I don't think you can go there either because you're white. I don't think it has to do with being, you know, male or female. If you're not part of a tribal community, um, it doesn't matter. And because I was not challenge challenging any of them, you know, my male colleagues in, in the tribes. You know, most tribal societies are matrilineal, matrilocal, so they're kind of used to having women in charge. Right. And I think that might be why some of it works so well, because they were used to being bossed around by women, and then I fit that category. You know, and I also listened. Yeah. Um, and I wasn't trying to tell them what to do. Um, and it, it, it evolved over the years, and um, I think that it's affected. I mean, it, I don't think I could have done what I, I've done had I not been a woman. Wow. Um, were there any historical female archaeologists who inspired you? You know, I, I was thinking about um, some some of sort of my mentors, and, and I think it was more that they were my colleagues that really, I mean, the woman that I started working with um, at Grand Canyon is a woman named Trinkle Jones, who uh, was a Park Service mm-hmm. archaeologist, and she brought me in. I'd never, I'd been to one national park in my entire life. I had no idea what it was that she was even asking me to do. We met in graduate school. Um, we were the only two brave enough to take a class at ASU on cultural resource manager management where the, um, the professor had a history of failing all of his students. Okay. Um, 
if, well, if you didn't get an A or B, you failed the class. I mean, C in grad school doesn't count. So we were the only two in this class, so it ended up being a seminar. Wow. Um, I was new to the Southwest. I had no idea. And so Twinkle and I formed a bond. We interned in the State Historic Preservation Office together, um, and we've been friends ever since. We're still That's friends. Wonderful. Yeah. And, you know, so I look at that, and um, uh, Twinkle, and there, were, and there were other, there was actually quite a few females in uh, my graduate program. Uh, one went on to be the Arizona Shippo. I mean, you know, there were a number of, of women who had worked within the field um, when I started coming out of graduate school who were doing some amazing things. And it wasn't so much that there was a lot of women archaeologists in the field prior to my going there. I mean, there was one, uh, no, there were two females at ASU. One of them is having her 90th birthday is coming year, um, <laughs> who actually, who were really um, encouraging to all of this. That's great. And, you know, I th- thought about it, and it's like everyone, I think we were all kind of moving together and at just different levels of where we were. So I think a lot of it came from the encouragement of my peers and my colleagues um, and a couple professors along the way. Um, and, I, and I think my family as well, who my father never said I couldn't do anything. They were a little right. concerned about my choice of careers. They didn't quite understand what that was coming from Western New York and uh, the great outdoors was not what the great outdoors is here. Um, they had no idea why I wanted to be an archeologist and what that meant. Um, but on the flip side, um, he's like, honey, if, if this is something that you're passionate about, great, go for it. That's great. Um, yeah. And I was lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time. And I think many of my tribal colleagues have reminded me that I was the right person at the right time. Mm-hmm. And it just, it just is the way that those things happen is that people connect. I mean, my colleague at Hopi, who recently retired, Lee uh, Konisima, he and I started about the same time. And uh, he likes to joke that uh, we started in diapers and now we're shopping for Depends. <laughs> and I've reminded him that he may be shopping for them, but I am not. That's great. Um, yeah. But he retired at the end of December. And it was, we were both the right people at the right time to allow these things to happen and to make those connections. And I think so much of it is being open to the possibilities and looking for those opportunities. Right. You mentioned earlier that the relationships are so important. You know. It's all about relationships. Yeah. If you don't have that, you can't have any successes in this program. Um, so we have just a couple minutes left and, um, I guess I, um, I hear that you also participate in reenactments <laughs> from time to time, at least, of Bert Loper's demise at 24 and a half mile rapid. Can you tell us more about that? I'm not sure how you heard about that. There's a video on YouTube, um, of a, um, of a speech you gave about the um, the project to preserve river oh. running boats of the Grand Canyon, and in the introduction, um, there's a there's a mention. Yeah. So over my uh, my career, I've had uh, the opportunity to spend a lot of time on the Colorado River, and one of the projects uh, that I spent a number of years on. Most projects take me about ten years to get anybody interested in and to, to do. I'm sort of used to having to wait. Um, but the Colorado River history is one that I got pretty engaged in, in including the preservation of the historic boats that we had mm-hmm. in the collection. And um, on some of my early trips, um, um, there was a fellow who was working as a river guide uh, who's also a, a historian. And um, on our very first trip together with the Arizona Archaeological and Historical Society trip, um, we decided to do a reenactment of Bert Lopers having his heart attack in 24 and a half mile. And he would play Bert Loper, and all of a sudden he would 
uh, reenact having a heart attack and I'm getting slumped over his words and I would be and standing or sitting in front of him saying, look to your oars, Bert. And then I'd look <laughs> behind and um, he would be slumped over and then the next thing we would crash and burn and um, Bert's body wasn't found for another 27 years and uh, Wayne awesome. um, did live. Um, <laughs> good, good. The remains of the boat, um, the Bert's boards we call it, is at uh, uh, downstream um, of 24 and a half miles. Kind of buried in the sand, so they're buried in the sand. They weren't part of the boat uh, preservation no, project. wasn't enough. No, and actually, it was in an area of the canyon. This happened in 1949, but when Bert passed away, and his, his uh, remains weren't found until '69. But oh, um, that part of the canyon actually had Marble Canyon Dam been built, that would have been underwater. Oh wow! I mean, there's so many layers of history. Yeah. Um, ab- that, about this, but yeah. So yeah. The, re- the remains are are kind of they they're withered and they're. Um, there's not much to it. There's a little plaque there now, but anyway. So, so Richard and I would periodically recreate uh, Little Bruce's demise. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, well, so mentioning the boats, you were instrumental in that project to preserve river running boats, um, and and boats are a pretty big artifact. Do you um, have a favorite example, um, big or small, of how artifacts play a part in telling the canyon story? You know, the, the I mean. The place itself is an artifact in a way. I mean, you, you look at different levels of them, and um, the historical river boats. I mean, each one of them tells its own story. I mean, each each artifact tells its own story. Yeah. And yeah, there are some that are that one of the boats is called the Julius Stone. It is such an elegant watercraft. That, you know, you just you just want to sit with it because it's so pretty. Yeah. Um, you know, and certainly our split twig figurines tell a story of archaic hunters. And some of the, the, the large um, vessel pots we have and the pendants, I mean, just the, the art, artistry of the past is just so amazing. And um, yes. each, each one of those pieces tells its own story. So I don't think I have a favorite, although I really do like going to sit with the Julia Stone boat because it's just the elegance of it. And the conservation work that was done by uh, Western Archaeological Center on Bryn Bender was our conservator, did an astounding job. And um, it's, it's a rich history on so many different levels from um, the uh, earliest inhabitants of Grand Canyon um, until sort of the most recent uh, historic artifacts. I mean, each and every piece, each and every building is all part of a much larger landscape of uh, the human history of, of Grand Canyon and why we care. Yeah. Well, Jan, thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate it. This has been wonderful. I've enjoyed it too. Thank you. One of the things that I really liked about your interview with Jan uh, was the way that she was able to um, really kind of synthesize and articulate um, the efforts of Grand Canyon uh, in doing tribal consultation and the way that they've been able to use the information that they get from those consultations to understand and manage their resources. That's something that all national parks are engaged in all the time, but it's also something that we struggle with. how do we use that information and, and how do we use it in, in the right ways? Yeah, definitely. Um, talking with you about this has made me think about um, an article by T.J. Ferguson and Chip Colwell where they talk about the collaborative continuum and that, you know, on one side you have true collaboration where um, all sides are bringing something to the table and and getting something from the process. And on the other side where, you know, you have no collaboration at all, um, not even information sharing. 
And I feel oftentimes that in the, the park service and working for the federal government, we have mandates that we are legally required to fulfill and, um, and a little bit of time to do all of that in. So it's very easy to get pulled into the middle of that continuum where, um, where you're doing consultation, you're sending out letters, but, um, but it, that's really just information sharing. That's not collaboration. And, um, and Jan's, you know, experience and, and background at the Grand Canyon, you know, really, um, inspires us to um, to really keep pushing for the collaboration side of that continuum. Absolutely. Well, folks, that's it for the inaugural season of the National Park Service Southwest Archaeology Podcast. We'll be busy over the summer recording interviews so that we can bring you behind the scenes of archaeology and preservation in the Southwest. We hope you'll join us in the fall for season two. The National Park Service Southwest Archaeology Podcast is a production of the Southern Arizona Office of the National Park Service. Our artwork was designed by Laura Varen Burkhart. Justin Mossman composed our music. We look forward to hearing from you. Matt and I will be with you again next month.